If you are unfamiliar with your Bibles, book Philemon is in the New Testament. It's after the four big books, the Gospels and Acts. It's at the very end of all of the letters of Paul, Philemon. Tiny letter, but as we will see over the next few weeks, we're walking through it. It is jam-packed with stuff. And so I'm excited to walk through the book of Philemon. Um, last week, we did sort of an introduction to the book of Philemon. And so we, we started in what I think is kind of the literary context for Philemon, which is Colossians 3. And that in Colossians 3, 12 through 14, we are told to forgive one another as we've been forgiven. And so all believers are to have a posture of forgiveness. That's what God has called us to, that we ought to be gracious and tenderhearted and forgiving towards one another, kind of as our ongoing posture. And um, the reason that I think that's part of the, the background for the book of Philemon is what is going on. You see, Paul is writing to a man named Philemon about another man named Onesimus. And so um, Onesimus was a slave who had belonged to Philemon and who had probably, most likely, maybe lost a lot of his money, done something with it, and ran off. And Philemon was an elder in his local church. He was a pastor. And so the book of Philemon is written from Paul to Philemon about the situation with Onesimus. And as we're going to see, he's really going to be encouraging, encouraging, the, um, encouraging Philemon to set Onesimus free. Onesimus has become a Christian, and, and Paul's kind of gently, tenderly, carefully, cautiously, but firmly asking him that he would, would turn and that he would set Onesimus free, and that he would not take out his, his vengeance on him. And we're going to see that the way that Paul goes about this, even in the first few verses, even in verses 1 through 3, indicate, um, indicate his deep understanding of the scriptures, his deep understanding of the gospel, and his dear, tender love for Philemon. So look with me, Philemon chapter 1, because it's only one chapter, verses 1 through 3. This is what God's word says. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you change us, that you bind us to yourself, that you love us, that we are yours and you are ours. Father, I pray as we come to talk about this this verse and as we talk about something maybe for some of us just is, is not is not a uh, what they would pick first to, to talk about in the book of Philemon, that you would help us all to see how deep these three verses are, that what is happening here is important and it's significant. God, we want to taste all that you have for us in your word. You say in, in, in your word that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the living God. And so even these three verses that maybe we might be tempted to skip over, they come from your mouth, and therefore they sustain us. So, Father, would you prepare us for eternity? It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. This week I was reading, was listening on Audible to um, a fascinating book 
called Everything Sad Will Come Untrue. And I don't know, I'd highly recommend this book, not a hard book. It's, it's the story of an Iranian exile who, whose mother becomes a Christian. And so he and his family flee. He and his sister and his mother flee from Iran and they go to live in, in the paradise known as Oklahoma. And, uh, and uh, they, they run away. And in this book, he's kind of describing a little bit of the dissonance that he has as someone who comes from a Persian background and into America. And so um, he's talking about this. And one of the interesting things about this is the concept that apparently Persian peoples have called tarof. And tarof is how different people greet one another. And so it's kind of predicated on this deep understanding of hospitality. And so if you are doing tarof with someone that you don't know, you, you, and you go to their, over to their house and you kind of bow down before them and you say, I am so sorry, I have soiled this beautiful, this beautiful rug that you bought for a million dollars and I don't know how I could ever pay you back. And the owner of the rug says, no, no, it, it, I would buy a thousand more so that you feel comfortable. And you kind of go back and forth and you're trying to get at what each other means until... It finally comes out that the owner of the rug wants you to wipe your feet off before you step on his rug. It, 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 kind of around and around and around and around. I have a parent, one parent, who is very much like this, one parent who's very much not. And uh, there, there's kind of this going around and kind of greeting each other, and that's how you, and, and in that game that they play, embedded is this, is this idea of hospitality and how they greet each other is, is imbued with dignity towards each other. And, and I would tell you that one of the most theologically freighted things that you do almost every day is just saying hello and greeting each other. It's massively important biblically and scripturally that how we even greet each other is, is so important. And maybe you say, you know, I really just kind of want to get to the meat of the letters. I don't really think there's that much in greetings. And you have clearly never walked through a high school hallway and seen the, the knowing looks that the hormone-driven monsters are giving each other in the hallway. And even a, what's up? carries with it a universe of of meaning. How we greet each other, yeah, you guys know. How we greet each other carries with it, and it reveals some really, really important things. And in particular, how Christians greet one another carries with it these important assumptions and this deep theology. And so we're going to see in, in this book of Philemon, in this, in this greeting that Paul has, um, Three, three things that how Christians greet one another reveals. So number one, it reveals how we view God. Number two, it reveals how we view each other. Number three, it reveals how we view ourselves, how we view God, how we view each other, and how we view ourselves. And one of the interesting things about this, that it reveals how we view God, is it is so fascinating because it's just the way that Paul uses language. If you look to verse 3, He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you read your Bible enough that you kind of just glaze over that language. And Paul opens up almost every letter this way. He just kind of says this, but we don't really see it in the context, in the full context of all of Scripture and how important just that way to describe God is. So uh, kind of a fundamental theological statement for the Old Testament is Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, which we had for our call to worship this morning. Deuteronomy 6, it's printed in your bulletin 4, four through 6. And it's called the Shema, because Shema is the, the Hebrew word for hear. And so it starts out by saying here, Hear, O Israel, 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And as we saw in our, in our scripture reading this morning, that kind of idea of God and Lord, Yahweh and Elohim, when, when those two words and names for God occur together in context, it's recalling this idea of the oneness of God, the uniqueness of God. It's very important for Paul. One of the most important scriptures in the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul restates the Shema. Look at this. It's imprinted in your bulletin. Paul says, Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So what Paul is doing there, he's just restating the language of the Shema. And again and again, if you read the the writings of the Apostle Paul, he'll use this language of God and Lord. And he's recalling the, the idea that God is one and this fundamental truth of the Hebrew Scriptures is so embedded in his existence that even the way that he describes God himself, it comes out through just his normal everyday language. And it comes out in the greetings that he makes in his letters. In verse 3, when he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he's talking in the language of the Shema. He's talking, he's saying, May, may grace and peace be given to you through the one God. He's using this language. Now, the scholar Richard Baucom, who's one of the most influential New Testament scholars, and he's just absolutely brilliant. Everything he, everything he writes is absolutely brilliant, and about 80% of it is right, which is pretty good. He argues, this is so interesting, that when Paul uses the language of the Shema, and I think he's right, he's inserting Jesus into the language of the Shema. Just think about that. So Paul is confessing, we believe in one God, and included in that one God is Jesus Christ. Included in that one God is the Son of God. So Paul's confessing an early kind of Trinitarianism. That included, and so even the way that Paul thinks about God is that Christ is included within that God and that Jesus Christ is God. And you'll notice that that is true in this greeting that he makes to Philemon. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in his greetings, even in the greeting that he makes to the people that he writes to, Paul can't help but think of Jesus. And the reason for that is he can never unsee the Damascus Road. Paul can, once the risen Christ, risen and ascended Christ has appeared to him on Damascus Road and everything else is blind, but that's the one thing he remembers, he is never going to forget that. And so every time he thinks of God, he can't help but think of the man, Jesus Christ. See, how we greet one another is a result of how we view God. Now, with just a little bit less certainty, I, I think there's another Old Testament passage in the background here. Just a little bit less certainty. The schema is pretty, I, I'm pretty, pretty 100% on. I'm about 90% on this other one. In the Greek, the word for, that they would normally use to say greetings to one another is the form of the word joy. So it's just kairain, okay, kairain. And it is very similar to the Greek word for grace, charis. And so when Paul opens up his letters, he's, he's doing a play on words. Instead of the normal way to greet, he's greeting with grace. 
But there's something you notice. It's not just grace that he's greeting. It's grace and peace. I think in the back of his mind, he's remembering another Old Testament passage we're going to read at the end of our service, which comes from Numbers. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. The classic benediction from the Old Testament, from the book of Numbers. I think that's in the background of Paul's mind. And you can see that here, grace and peace, just like in that Old Testament. Now, here's here's why that's important. The Hebrew is a very visceral language. And, And so wrapped up in the Hebrew language, this idea of grace is the idea that God makes his face to shine upon us. If you could think about it this way. The grace of God always has a face. It's when God makes his face to shine upon the people of God. It's, it's when God lights up his face, that his countenance, it's almost this idea, it's, it's, it's less sentimental than the idea that God is smiling, but it's the idea that when God gives grace, he, he's shining at it, he's giving us his blessing. And, and God doesn't create grace. God never shows us his grace without showing us himself. And God's grace, it's when he's actually bringing us into relationship with himself. And for the Apostle Paul, the grace of God always has a face, and that face is the face of Jesus Christ. So when Paul says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he's talking in the language of the Old Testament, he's talking in the language of the Shema, and he's, he's talking in the language of this classic benediction from Numbers, and he can't help but see within that... Jesus Christ himself. How we greet one another is a result of how we view God. How we greet one another is a result of how we view God. And this view that Paul has of God, of the the one true God, the God of Israel, and, and Jesus Christ within the one true God, and Jesus Christ blessing and showing his face to us, we see that there are, let's say, three or four things. Three or four things about about these verses that contribute to how he thinks of God. So number one, this is a God who binds. This is a God who binds. And how Paul views himself, we'll talk more about this in a second. Paul calls himself a prisoner. Now, Paul here is referencing the fact that he's in prison in Rome. You'll hear some people tell you that he's in Ephesus. They're wrong. He's in Rome. Apostle Paul's in Rome when this is happening. And he is someone who is... And the word prisoner literally means someone who's bound. But Paul does not refer to his human captives, right? He's a prisoner for whom? Prisoner for Jesus Christ. He's one who's bound to Christ, by Christ, for Christ. He's one who belongs to him. And so for Paul, he can't help but see that God himself is the one who binds him. Not only is the God the one who binds, but God is also one who loves You'll notice he says, to Philemon, our beloved, and here the NASB is better than the ESV. Um, the e- NASB says, our dear friend or our beloved one. I think the NIV says that too, and that's probably a more accurate translation than our beloved fellow worker. And so Paul is seeing that, that Philemon is someone whom God loves. He, he sees it, and so God binds because he loves. These ideas are tied together. If you'll remember last week in Colossians 3, we said this was the, the background for the book of Philemon, Paul tells, the, Paul tells the Colossians to put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. 
And so Paul here is seeing Philemon he's, as, as one of those beloved. He, he's seeing him, which again is going to play into this whole idea of what he's writing. So, so God is not only God who binds, God is the one who loves. God is one who adopts. Notice here the language, the family language that we have here. Timothy is his brother and Aphia is his sister and God is father. This is a God who not only binds, God who not only loves, but he is also a God who adopts. And we can't see this kind of language without seeing the classic uh, passages in Romans 8 and in Galatians 4 and in Ephesians 1 where we see that God adopts us into his family, that you and I become as much sons of God as the Son of God is himself. How we greet one another is a result of how we view God. We also see that this God is a God who gathers. This God is a God who gathers. It's significant that Paul does not just write to Philemon. He writes to Aphia and Archippus and the church in your house. This is God who gathers together. Paul cannot see a Christian as a solitary individual. This is the most personal letter that Paul writes. This is, and yet Paul can't help but see that Philemon is connected to a church body. And as we'll talk about, he's, he, he has other Christians in his life. And so Paul is writing with the understanding that God has gathered Philemon into the, the church and that this meeting between them, this greeting that's taking place through pen and parchment is a result of God's sovereign work to bring Christians into each other's lives. This is a God who who gathers, how we greet one another. How we greet one another is a result of how we view God. If you greet other Christians as if it's a coincidence or by chance, you will not take it as seriously as if you greet them as if God has brought them to your face for such a time as this. Do you understand that how you and I think of God actually matters for how we interact with each other? It's also how we greet one another is also a result of how we view each other. How we view each other. Notice he, he, he's writing to Philemon. He says, To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. It's so interesting because almost certainly Philemon was wealthy. Everybody thinks he's wealthy. He is a person who had authority within the church, probably an elder and a pastor. He... He is probably a person who um, the church respects. He's probably someone who, if you are writing to him to get him to release a slave, you maybe are being a little bit more manipulative than Paul's being here. He, re- he greets Philemon as his, and Aphia. Aphia is interesting. You know, this is the only time in all of Paul's 13 letters that he mentions a woman in the greeting of his letter. That's so interesting. The question is why? And I, I think there's a couple reasons. I think for one, Aphia is probably Philemon's wife. So I think that there's a relationship that is here. I think Aphia was also independently wealthy. So she, car- she carried a large dowry into the, into the marriage. And potentially, thinking of what Onesimus did, how he lost a lot of Philemon's money, maybe he lost some of her money too. So Paul's writing to a woman who... who was very generous and, and who he's writing into a delicate situation who had a lot of wealth, probably who's well-respected by the congregation. 
And Paul's also writing to Archippus. We don't know much about Archippus other than what is here and, and what we see in Colossians. We'll do that in a second. And yet what we see when Paul's writing to these, to these dear saints, Paul does not write with a tone of condescension. He doesn't write as someone in, who, who can, who's, in, uh, who's uh, subordinate to him. Paul doesn't write from a place of competitiveness. Paul doesn't write from a place of insecurity. Paul doesn't view these as someone who he needs to get something from. No, because Paul belongs to Christ, he can never view other Christians as anything else. He views them as people who also belong to Christ. And so notice he calls Philemon our beloved fellow worker. He, he views Philemon as, as somebody who, who is on the same team as him, who's working, he's, he's giving him this respect, this word for a co-worker is often used of other, uh, of other people who labor with Paul. There's a chance that Paul and Philemon have never met, and yet Paul is, is recognizing that God has called him to, a, to this ministry, that God has put him in a position of authority over his church. He calls Philemon our beloved fellow worker. He says, Aphia, our sister. He recognize, This is so incredible. He recognizes that Aphia is part of the family of God. That Aphia herself was adopted into the family. Paul does not write to her as someone who's a woman, so he doesn't ever have to talk to. Paul does not write to her as someone who, someone who is less than. He gives her dignity and respect. He, he, he appreciates the fact that she, too, is someone who is saved. Some people think Paul is a misogynist, and that's just not how Paul treats Afi. He's, he's gentle with her. He's tender towards her. And to Archippus. You know, Archippus is such an interesting person. In, in Colossians, Paul tells the, the Colossians to tell Archippus to fulfill the ministry that you have from the Lord. Why would he say that? You know, I think back to the Old Testament, back to Joshua, and you know how many times Joshua is told, be strong and courageous? You don't tell someone who has a little bit of overconfidence to be strong and courageous. Tell someone who's perhaps timid, perhaps given to cowardice, perhaps given to insecurity, be strong and courageous. It's very similar here. Paul is telling Archippus, and, and so we kind of think maybe Archippus is in the trenches. Maybe he's going through a really rough season in his ministry. Maybe he's just discouraged and he's despairing. Maybe, maybe Paul's writing this letter to Philemon and he thinks Archippus is there. I'm also going to encourage Archippus while I'm writing this letter. And he says to him, our fellow soldier, I mean, imagine that you are a pastor in a church that maybe you never even met the Apostle Paul, and yet you get this note from the Apostle Paul, you and I are in the trenches together. Think about how encouraging that would have been. Paul views Archippus and Philemon and Aphia as those who have been changed and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He can't unsee Jesus and notice here, he says, the, and he goes out of his way to say this, and the church in your house. He could have said, and your church, but he goes out of his way to recognize that Philemon and probably Aphia are showing hospitality to the church. They're welcoming them in. It's not like the, the church had their own building. No, 
The church would often meet in the house and in the, the parlors and the living room of, of wealthy uh, individuals in the church. And Paul is recognizing that Philemon and Aphia had showed hospitality to this church and welcomed them in and shared life with them. And in Romans, we're told that we should welcome one another's in as God in Christ has welcomed us in. And Paul is, even in this greeting, he's recognizing the fruit of the gospel in their life. That they are fulfilling their obligation to the community. And, and notice this, Paul is going to write to Philemon about a very sensitive matter. About a matter which maybe Philemon is given to disagreeing with him. He's writing to him to, to get him to forgive and to release Onesimus. He's, he's writing to him about this area which is very sensitive. And he goes out of his way to recognize that God is at work in this church and in this couple. He's recognizing the fruit that God and this gospel has produced in the life of Philemon. How we greet one another is a result of how we view each other. But how we greet one another is also a result of how we view ourselves. Notice how Paul introduces himself. It's very striking that he does this. It says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Now, Paul wrote 13 letters, and about nine of those letters, Paul introduces himself with the title Apostle. So he introduces himself as one who's been sent. It's a, it's a position of authority. It's a position of prestige in the early church. And, and Paul often uses that to get his audience to say, listen, listen up. And three other times, I believe it's three, Paul writes to people just with his name. Maybe Paul thinks that he's that well-known, that he's that infamous, that he doesn't have to say anything else. Very interesting. He just says, Paul. But here, he, there's the only place he does this in the greetings to his letter. He does it in the middle of a couple letters. But here, he calls himself a prisoner for Christ Jesus. The, the, how he wanted to introduce himself in this letter is one who belongs to another. What's interesting, if you read the book of Acts, the, the verbal form of this word, deo, um, it means bind. And Paul is someone who goes about and binds others. He goes about and takes others captive and drags them off to prison. And then Paul sees the risen and ascended Lord on the road to Damascus. And suddenly, Paul is no longer the one who imprisons others. Paul becomes known. And it's used so many times in the book of Acts. I kind of think it was a nickname of Paul's. Paul becomes the prisoner. It's used again and again, the prisoner, the prisoner, the prisoner, the prisoner. Paul is no longer the one who imprisons others. He's the one who himself is imprisoned. He is no longer one who binds others. He himself is the one who is bound. He is no longer the one who takes others captive. He is himself the one who's captive. Do you understand the significance of this, that Paul no longer views himself in a position of authority, that as he'll say in 1 Timothy, that he is the chief among sinners? And Paul comes from this position of extreme humility as he's greeting Philemon. Again, you just have to remember, he's, he's trying to get him to do something which was unusual and strange and controversial, and it is a powder keg waiting to happen. And Paul approaches it not from a position of authority, a position of strength, a position of power. Paul approaches it from a position of humility and weakness, a lowliness and meekness calls himself a 
prisoner, the prisoner for Christ Jesus. And why, why would Paul do that? Why, why wouldn't Paul assert himself? Why wouldn't Paul be overly proud? Why wouldn't Paul play to his strength? Because Paul knows that he does not belong to himself. I love what the Heidelberg Catechism says. It says, what is thy only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation, and therefore by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. How Paul views himself as one who belongs to another who is a captive and a slave for Jesus Christ. Paul does not view himself as somebody who has to find his own way, who just has to look inside and follow his heart. He doesn't view himself as someone who has to define himself. He knows that all of his identity, all of who he is, is determined by another. And that he belongs to him. Therefore, what can anybody else do to him? They kill him. I love how he says in Philippians, he says, for me to live to die, for, for me to die is gain and to live is Christ. Nobody can take anything from him because he belongs to Christ. And this comes forth even in his greeting. And here's what I want you to know. There is not a taste. There's not a taste. And you can read this whole letter, and I encourage you to read it once each week as we're walking through Philemon. There's not even a hint, not even a tinge of insecurity on Paul's part. Paul is not afraid of how others will see him, and so he therefore he puffs himself up to put others down. He's not trying to impress anybody. He's not trying to make himself something that he's not. But as he says in 2 Corinthians, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul knows that he belongs to another. And so when he greets the church in Colossae, when he greets Philemon, he comes from that place. How we greet one another is a result of how we view God and how we view each other and how we view ourselves. As those who are bound and captivated by Christ. When when you have been taken captive by the Lord, when you are bound unto him, when you belong to another, you can't help but see other Christians the same way. You can't help but have this sweet tenderness and fellowship with other believers because they too belong to Jesus. So here's some applications. Here's some applications. Number one, If you belong to yourself, you don't belong to Jesus. 
Let me say that again. If you belong to yourself, you don't belong to Jesus. We live in a culture which tells us that we need to determine ourselves. We need to decide who we are. That We just need to look down deep and dig down deep. And God help us, sometimes us Christians, we cover that same attitude up with Christianese, don't we? But this way of thinking tells us that we belong to another. That we are prisoners of Christ. So if you belong to yourself, you don't belong to Christ. But if you belong to Christ, then he is yours. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to say, Jesus, I want all of you, and I will therefore give you all of me. It means to say, not only do I want you to save me from my sins, not only do I want you to justify me and forgive me, but I want you to have me. If you want to have Jesus as your Savior, Jesus gets you. That's the way it works. You and I want to be forgiven and justified for our sins, then we also must belong to Jesus. If, if you are your own, you're not Christ, but if you are Christ, then Christ is yours. Number two, if you don't belong to Jesus, then you miss out on this sweet, sweet fellowship between believers. If you don't belong to Jesus, then this in a sense, is, is not for you. I, one of the things that I love when I go on vacation is I love to go and visit other churches. And I, I love to meet these other believers and they'll always say, oh yeah, we'll stay in touch. We won't. But I, I love to meet them anyways. They're, they're dear people. I, I love them. And I love to go and visit other churches and other Christians. And the, the minute that we both know each other's saved, the minute that we both know each other's in each other, it, it changes. You know, there's just this sense of knowledge that we know each other. We both know that we have something in common that the world cannot take away. And so if you don't belong to Christ, that's not for you, but it could be. There's nothing stopping you today from giving yourself to Christ and taking all of Christ. There's there's nothing that's stopping you today from being captivated by Christ. If you've never done that, I would encourage you to pray that prayer even now. Maybe talk to somebody in this uh, sanctuary afterwards. Say, what does it mean to put my trust in Christ. And I'm sure anyone who's a member here would love to talk with you about that because that's one of the questions we ask members when they become members is, how did you become a Christian? And they would love to walk you through that. I would also say this, third application, that how you view God, how you view God matters for how you view others and how you view yourself. How you view God matters for how you view others and how you view yourself. It's important to have a good understanding of the Lord. Now, I'm not saying everyone needs to go and read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Read the Institutes instead. (laughs) I'm not saying that you need to be an academic. What I am saying is you and I need to have a, a deep personal knowledge of the Lord and Scripture. How we view God matters for how we view others and ourselves. I would say this. If you have been bound to Christ, if you've been bound for Christ and by Christ, if you are His, then so are other Christians. So are other Christians. And therefore, shouldn't you treat them like it? Shouldn't you treat them as those who are the beloved of the Lord's? Shouldn't you treat them as those whom God has called and equipped for every good work? 
Shouldn't you treat them as those who've been bought by the precious blood of the Lamb? I would just say this lastly. It is not a mistake. It's not a mistake that you will come into contact with other Christians that you do. You don't know, maybe God has put those people before you face to face so that you can can encourage them and lift them up. It's not a mistake that you come into contact with other Christians. It's not a mistake that when you meet other Christians that, that, that they're there. We're, we're not just atoms running around in the universe at random. No, God, we believe in a God who's sovereign and a God who's in control, a God who's in charge, and a God who has providence. It's not a mistake when we meet other Christians and we come face to face with them. That's by God's design. And so when you see other Christians, take the opportunity to encourage them and lift them up. Take the opportunity to bless them with your presence. Take the opportunity to dig deep and ask them how they're actually doing. Take the opportunity to be generous and assume the best about them. Take the opportunity to affirm the fruit that you see in their lives. Take the opportunity to encourage them. I was reading in Proverbs this week, Proverbs, I think, 14.10. I think 14.10. Don't hold me to that. It says that the heart, the heart has sorrow, which it alone knows. And you never know what sorrow other Christians are holding in their heart. What, what depths of discouragement they are plumbing. And you never know how just a simple greeting, showing that you care and encouraging them, how that might lift the cloud, how that might shine through the gloom just a little bit today. Christians, if you have been bound and captivated by Christ, you are not your own. You belong to another, and so do others. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that you have bound us to yourself and we cannot unsee your son. We thank you that we are adopted through your son into your family. That you have sealed your name on our hearts with your Holy Spirit that we are justified by faith alone. We thank you that you take all of us and give us all of your son. Father, maybe there's someone who is here today who has never taken the step of putting their faith in your son. Father, maybe it's someone who's been in church for a really long time. They've never taken that step. Maybe it's someone, this is their first Sunday at church. God, would you work miraculously? Would you show them your face in the face of Christ so they would never be changed? And Father, for us, as we are about to wrap up our worship service, as we are about to to go into our congregational meeting in a little while, would you imbue us with a sense of your graciousness and your presence? that we might shine the light of your gospel unto one another. And we pray that all the glory would be to your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.